Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We are reading the Junior Classics Volume 1, and we're continuing from where we left off with Jack and the Beanstalk by Anonymous. Once upon a time, there was a poor widow who lived in a little cottage with only her son Jack. Jack was giddy, thoughtless boy, but very kind-hearted and affectionate. There had been a, vi there had been a hard winter, and after it the poor woman had suffered from fever and ague. Jack did not work as of yet, and by degrees they were dreadfully poor. The woman sat there with no means of keeping Jack and herself from starvation, but by selling her cow. So no one. So one morning she said to her son, I am too weak to go myself, Jack, so you must take the cow to market for me and sell her. Jack liked going to the market to sell the cow very much, but he was on his way when he met a butcher who had some beautiful beans in his hand. Jack stopped to look at them, and the butcher told the boy that they were of great value and persuaded the silly lad to sell the cow for these beans. When he brought them home to his mother instead of the money she expected for her nice cow, she was very vexed and shed many tears, scolding Jack for his folly. He was very sorry, and his and mother and son went to bed very sadly that night. Their hopes, their last hopes, seemed gone. At daybreak, Jack rose and went out into the garden. At least he thought, "I will sow the wonderful beans." Mother says that they are just common scarlet runners, and nothing else. But I may, well, settle them. So he took a piece of a stick and made some holes in the ground and put in the beans. That day they had very little dinner and went sadly to bed, knowing that for the next day there would be none. And Jack, unable to sleep from grief and vexation, got up at day, at day dawn and went out into the garden. What was his amazement to find that the beans had grown up in the night and climbed up until they covered the high cliff that sheltered the cottage, disappearing above it, the stalks twined and twisted themselves together till they found quite a ladder. It would be easy to climb it, thought Jack, and having thought of the experiment, he at once resolved to carry it out, for Jack was a good climber. However, after his late mistake with the cow, he thought he had better consult his mother first. So Jack called his mother, and they both gazed in silent wonder at the beanstalk, which was not only of great height, but was thick enough to bear Jack's weight. I wonder where it ends, said Jack to his mother. I think I will climb up and see. His mother wished him not to venture up this strange ladder, but Jack coaxed her to give her consent to the attempt, for he was certain there must be something wonderful in the beanstalk. So at last she yielded to his wishes. Jack instantly began to climb and went up and up on the ladder-like bean until everything he had left behind him, the cottage, the village, and even the tall church tower looked quite small, and still he could not see the top of the beanstalk. Jack felt a little tired, 
and though for a moment he could go back again, but he was very persuasive. He was a very persevering boy, and he knew that the way to succeed in anything is not to give up, so he rested for a moment and went on. After climbing higher and higher till he grew afraid to look down, for fear he should be giddy, Jack at least reached the top of the beanstalk and found himself in a wonderful country, finely wooded with beautiful meadows covered with steep, with steep, with sheep. A crystal stream ran through the pasture not far from the place where he had gotten off the beanstalk stood a fine strong castle. Jack wondered very much that he had never heard of or seen this castle before, but he reflected on the subject and he saw that it was very much separate from the village by the perpendicular rock on which it stood as it was in another land. While Jack was standing looking at the castle, a very strange-looking woman came out of the wood and advanced toward him. She wore a pointed cap of quilted red satin, turned up with ermine. Her hair streamed, her hair streamed loose over her shoulders, and she walked with a staff. Jack took off his cap and made her a bow. "'If you please, madam,' said he, "'is this your house?' "'No,' said the old lady. "'Listen, and I will tell you the story of that castle.' Once upon a time there was a noble knight who lived in this castle, which is on the border of Fairyland. He had a fair and beloved wife and several lovely children, and as his neighbors, the little people, were very friendly toward him. They bestowed on him many excellent precious gifts. Rumor whispered of these treasures and monstrous giant who lived at a great distance who was very wicked, a very wicked being, resolved to obtain possession of them. So he bribed a false servant to let him inside the castle when the knight was in bed and asleep, and he killed him as he lay. Then he went to the part of the castle which was the nursery, and also killed all the poor little ones he found there. Happily for her, the lady was not to be found. She had gone with her infant son, who was only two or three months old, to visit her old nurse, who lived in the valley, and she had been detained all night but detained all night there by a storm. The next morning, as soon as it was light, one of the servants at the castle, who had managed to escape, came to tell the poor lady of the sad fate of her husband and her pretty babes. She could scarcely believe him at first, and was eager at once to go back and share the fate of her dead of her dear ones, but the old nurse, with many tears, besought her to remember that she still had a child, and that it was her duty to preserve her life for the sake of the poor innocent. The lady yielded to this reasoning, and consented to remain at the nurse's house at the best place of concealment, for the servant told her that the giant had vowed if he could find her, he would kill both her and her baby. Years rolled on, the old nurse died, leaving the, her cottage and the few articles of furniture it contained to her poor lady, who dwelt in it, working as a peasant for her daily bread, her spinning wheel, and the milk of a cow, which she had purchased with the little money she had with her, sufficed for the sanctity su sustenance of her and her little son. There was a nice little garden attached to the cottage, 
in which they cultivated peas, beans, and cabbages, and the lady was not ashamed to go out and harvest time and glean in the fields to supply her little son's wants. Jack, that poor lady is your mother. This castle was once your father's and must again be yours. And Jack uttered a cry of surprise. My mother, oh, madame, what ought I to do? My poor father, my dear mother, your duties require you to win it back for your mother, but the task is a very difficult one and full of peril. Jack, have you the courage to undertake it? I fear nothing when I am doing right, said Jack. Then said the lady in the red cape, You are one of those who slay giants. You must go into the castle and, if possible, possess yourself of a hen that lays golden eggs and a harp that talks. Remember, all the giant possesses is really yours. As she ceased speaking, the lady of the red hat suddenly disappeared, and of course Jack knew she was a fairy. Jack determined at once to attempt the adventure, so he, he advanced and blew the horn which hung at the castle's portal. The door was opened in a minute by two frightful giantesses, with one great eye in the middle of her forehead. As soon as Jack saw her, he turned away to run, but she caught him and dragged him into the castle. Ho, ho, she laughed terribly. You did not expect to see me here. That is clear. No, I shan't let you go again. I am weary of my life. I am so overworked, and I don't see why I should not have a page as well as other ladies. And you shall be my boy. You shall clean the knives and back the boots and when and make the fires and help me generally when the giant is out. When he is at home, I must hide you, for he has eaten up all my pages hitherto, and you will be a dainty morsel, my little lad. While she spoke, she dragged Jack into the castle. The poor boy was very much frightened, as I am sure you and I would have been in his place, but he remembered that fear disgraces a man, so he struggled to be brave and make the best of things. I am quite ready to help you, and do all I can to serve you, madam, he said. I only beg you will be good enough to hide me from your husband, for I should not like to be eaten at all. That's a good boy, said the giantess, nodding her head. It is lucky for you that you did not scream out when you saw me, as the other boys who have been here did. For if you had done so, my husband would have awakened and have eaten you, as he did them, for breakfast. Come here, child. Go into my wardrobe. He never ventures to open that. You will be safe there. And she opened a huge wardrobe, which stood in the great hall, and shut him into it. But the keyhole was so large and it admitted plenty of air, and he could see everything that took place through it. By and by he heard a heavy tramp on the stairs, like the lumbering one of a great cannon, and then heard the vo thunderer voice cry out, Fee fo fum, I smell the breath of an Englishman. Let me let him be alive or let him be dead. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Wife, cried the giant, there is a man in the castle. Let me have him for breakfast. You are grown old and stupid, cried the lady, her loud tone. It is only a nice fresh stick off the elephant that I have cooked for you, which you smell. There, sit down and make a good breakfast. And she placed a huge dish before him of savory steaming meat, 
which greatly pleased him and made him forget his idea of an Englishman being in the castle. When he had breakfast, he went out for a walk, and the giantess opened the door and made Jack come out to help her. He helped her all day. She fed him well, and when evening came, put him back in the wardrobe. The giant came in to supper. Jack watched him through the keyhole and was amazed to see him pick a wolf's bone and put half the fowl at a time into his capacious mouth. Capacious mouth. When the supper was ended, he bade his wife bring him his hen that lay the golden eggs. It lays as well as it did when it belonged to that paltry knight, he said. Indeed, I think the eggs are heavier than ever. The giantess went away and soon returned with the little brown hen, which she placed on the table before her husband. And now, my dear, she said, I am going for a walk. If you don't want me any longer, go, said the giant. I shall be glad to have a nap by and by. Then he took up the brown hen and said to her, Lay, and she instantly laid a golden egg. Lay, said the giant again, and she laid another. Lay, repeated the third time, and again a golden egg lay on the table. Now Jack was sure this hen was the one of which the fairy had spoken. By and by the giant put the hen down on the floor and soon after went fast asleep, snoring loud that it sounded like thunder. Directly Jack perceived that the giant was fast asleep, he pushed to open the door of the wardrobe and crept out. Very softly he stole across the room, picking up the hen, made haste to quit the apartment. He knew the way to the kitchen, the door of which he found was left ajar. He opened it, shut it, and locked it after him, and flew back to the beanstalk, which descended as fast as his feet could move. When his mother saw him enter the house, she wept for joy. She had feared that the fairies had carried him away, or the giant had found him. But Jack put the brown hen down before her, and told her how he had been in the giant's castle, and all his adventures. She was very glad to see the hen, which can make them rich once more. Jack made another journey up the beanstalk to the giant's castle one day, while his mother had gone to market, but first he dyed his hair and disguised himself. The old woman did not know him again, and dragged him in as she was as she had done before, to help her do the work, but she heard her husband coming and hid him in the wardrobe, not thinking that it was the same boy that had stolen the hen. She bade him stay quiet still there, or the giant would eat him. Then the giant came fl came in, saying, fee fi fo fum I smell the breath of an Englishman. Let him alive or let him be dead. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Nonsense, said the wife. It is only a roasted bullock that I thought would be a tidbit for your supper. Sit down and I will bring it at once. The giant sat down and soon his wife brought up a roasted bullock on a large dish and they began their supper. Jack was amazed to see them pick the bones of the bullock as if it had been a lark. As soon as they had finished their meal, the giantess rose and said, Now, my dear, with your leave, I am going up to my room to finish the story I am reading. If you want me, call for me. First, answered the giant, bring me my money bags, that I may count my golden pieces before I sleep. The giantess obeyed. She went 
and soon returned with the two large bags over her shoulder, which she put down by her husband. There, she said, that is all that is left of the night's money. When you have spent it, you must go and take another baron's, and ca baron's castle. That he shan't, if I sh can help it, thought Jack. The giant, when his wife was gone, took out heaps and heaps of golden pieces and counted them and put them in piles till he was tired of amusement. Then he swept them all back into their bags and leaning back in his chair fell fast asleep, snoring so loud that no other sound was audible. Jack stole softly out of the wardrobe and taking up the bags of money, which were his very own, because the knight had stolen them from his father, he ran off with great difficulty, descending the beanstalk, laid the bags of gold at his mother's table. She had just returned from town, and she was crying at not finding Jack. There, mother, I have brought you the gold that my father lost. Oh, Jack, you are a very good boy, but I wish you would not risk your precious life in the, castle, in the giant's castle. Tell me how you came to go there again. And Jack told her all about it. Jack's mother was very glad to get the money, but she did not like him to run any risk for her. But after a time, Jack made up his mind to go again to the giant's castle. So he climbed the beanstalk once more and blew the horn at the giant's gate. The giantess soon opened the door. She was very stupid and did not know him again, but she stopped a minute before she took him in. She feared another robbery, but Jack's flesh, fresh face looked so innocent that she could not resist him, and so she bade him come in and again hid him away in the wardrobe. By and by the giant came home, and as soon as he had crossed the threshold he roared, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the breath of an Englishman. Let him be alive or let him be dead. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. You stupid old giant, said his wife, you only smell a nice sheep which I have grilled for your dinner. And the giant sat down, and his wife brought up a whole sheep for his dinner. When he had eaten it all up, he said, Now bring me my harp, and I will have a little music while you take your walk. The giantess obeyed, and returned with a beautiful harp. The framework was of all sparkling, with diamonds and rubies, and the strings were all of gold. This is one of the nicest things I took from the night, said the giant. I am very fond of music, and my harp is faithful, my faithful servant. So he drew the harp toward him and said, Play. And the harp played a very soft, sad air. Play something merrier, said the giant, and the harp played a merry tune. Now play me a lullaby, roared the giant, and the harp played a sweet lullaby to the sound of which its master fell asleep. When Jack stole softly out of the wardrobe and went into the huge kitchen to see if the giantess had gone out, he found no one there, so he went to the door and opened it softly, for he thought he could not do so with the harp in his hand. Then he entered the giant's room, seized the harp, and ran away with it. But he jumped over the threshold, and the harp called out, Master, Master, and the giant woke up. With a tremendous roar, he, span, he sprang from his seat and in two strides had reached the door. But Jack was very nimble. He fled like lightning with the harp, talking to it as he went, for he saw it was a fairy, and telling it he was the son of the old master knight. 
Still the giant came on so fast that he was quite close to poor Jack and had stretched out his great hand to catch him, but luckily just at that moment he stepped upon a loose stone and stumbled and fell flat on the ground where he lay at his full length. The accident gave Jack time to get on the beanstalk and to hasten down it, but just as he reached their own garden, he beheld the giant descending after him. Mother, mother, cried Jack, make haste and give me the axe. His mother ran to him with a hatchet in her hand, and Jack, with one tremendous blow, cut all the beanstalk except one. Now, mother, stand out of the way, and said he, and Jack's mother shrank back, and it was well she did so, for just as the giant took hold of the last branch of the beanstalk, Jack cut the stem quite through and darted from the spot. Down came the giant with a terrible crash, and as he fell on his head, he broke his neck and lay dead at the feet of the woman who had so much injured. Before Jack and his mother had recovered from their alarm and agitation, a beautiful lady stood before them. Jack, she said, you have acted like a brave knight's son and deserve to have your inheritance restored to you. Dig a grave and bury the giant, and then go kill the giantess. But Jack but said Jack, I could not kill anyone unless I were fighting with him, and I could not draw my sword upon a woman. Moreover, the giantess was very kind to me. The fairy smiled on Jack. I am very much pleased of your generous feelings, she said. Nevertheless, return to the castle and act as you will find need needful. Jack asked the fairy. <clears throat> Jack asked the fairy if she should show him the way to the castle, and the beanstalk was now down. She told him that she would drive him there in her chariot, which was drawn by two peacocks. Jack thanked her and sat down in the chariot with her. The fairy drove him a long distance around till they reached the village, which lay at the bottom of the mill. Here they found a number of miserable-looking men assembled. The fairy stopped her carriage and addressed them. My friend, she said, the cruel giant who oppressed you and ate up all your flock and herd is dead, and this young gentleman was the means of being, your being delivered from him, and is the son of your kind old master, the knight. The men gave a loud cheer at these words, and pressed toward to say that they would serve Jack as faithfully as they had served his father. The fairy bade them follow her to the castle, and they marched hither in a body, and Jack blew the horn and demanded entrance. The old giantess saw them coming from the turret loophole. She was very much frightened, for she guessed that something had happened to her husband, and she, as she came downstairs, very fast, she caught her foot in her dress and fell the top of the bottom and fell from top to the bottom and broke her neck. When the people outside found the door was not open to them, they stood they took crowbars and forced the portal. Nobody was to be seen, but on leaving the mall they found the body of the giantess at the foot of the stairs. Thus Jack took possession of the castle, the fairy went and brought his mother to him, and with the hen and the harp, he and the giantess buried. With he, he had the giantess buried, and endeavored as much as lay in his power to do right to those whom the giant had robbed. 
before her departure for Fairyland, the fairy explained to Jack that she had sent the butcher to meet him with the beans in order to try try what sort of lad he was. If you had took the giant beanstalk and only stupidly and only stupidly wondered about it, she said, I should have left you for where your misfortune had placed you, only restoring her cow to your mother. But you showed an inquiring mind and a great courage and enterprise. Therefore you deserve to rise, and when you mounted the beanstalk, you climbed the ladder of fortune. She then took her leave of Jack and his mother. Hopo My Thumb, retold by Joseph Jacobs Once upon a time there was a woodcutter and his wife, who had seven children, all boys. The eldest was ten years old. They were very poor, and their seven children were of great were a great burden, since not one of them was able to earn a living. What troubled them still more was the fact that the youngest was not only very delicate, but silent, which they took for his stupidity, but which was really a mark of his good sense. He was very small, and we, when he was born, he was scarcely bigger than one's thumb, which caused him to be called Little Hop on My Thumb. This poor child was the scapegoat of the house and was blamed for everything. He was, however, sharper and wiser than all his brothers, and though he spoke little, he listened a great deal. At last there came a bad year, and so a great famine, that the poor people resolved to rid themselves of their children. One evening, when the children were all in bed, and the woodcutter, with a sorrowful heart, was sitting by the fire with his wife, he said to her, You know that we can go no longer support our children. I cannot let them die of hunger before my eyes, and I might resolve to take them to the wood tomorrow and lose them. It will be easy to do this, for while they are amuse themselves trying my sticks, we have only to slip away without their seeing us. Ah, cried the wife, would you then destroy your children? In vain did her husband set forth to her the great poverty. She would not consent. She was poor, she said, but she was their mother. At last, having considered what a grief it would be to her to have them die of hunger, before her eyes she agreed to her husband's plan and went weeping to bed. Hoppo, my thumb, had listened to all that they had said, for having heard them from his bed talking of family matters, he had risen softly and slipped under his father's stool in order to hear without being seen. He then went back to bed, but lay the rest of the night, thinking what he should do. He rose early and went to a brook, where he filled his pockets with little white pebbles and then returned to the house. Soon after they all set off, but Hop and my thumb did not tell his brothers anything of what he knew. They went into a forest so thick that they could not see each other at a distance of ten paces. The woodcutter began to fell a tree, while the children gathered sticks to make up into bundles. Then the father and mother, seeing them thus employed, slipped away unnoticed, and then fled rapidly by a little winding path. Then the children found they were alone and began to scream and cry with all their strength. Hoppo, my thumb, let them cry, knowing how to get home, for while walking he had dropped along the path a little 
walked along the path the little white petals which he had in his pocket. He therefore said to them, Fear not, brothers, my father and mother have left us here, but I will lead you to the house, only follow me. They obeyed at once, and he had led them home along the same path by which they had come into the forest at first. They did not dare go into the house, but placed themselves near the door in order to hear what their father and mother were saying. Now it had so happened that just as the woodcutter and his wife reached home, the lord of the village had sent them ten crowns, which he had long owed them, and which they had never hoped to obtain. This gave them a new life, for the poor creature were almost dead from hunger. The woodcutter immediately sent his wife to the butcher, where, as it was long since they had eaten anything, she brought three times as much meat as they needed for the supper of two people. When they were settled at the table, the wife said, Alas, where now are our poor children? They would make good cheer within what we have left, but it is you who wished to lose them. I always said we should repent it. What, what are they doing now in the forest? Alas, perhaps the wolves have eaten them, have already eaten them. You were the most cruel thus to lose your children. The woodcutter at last grew impatient, for she had repeated more than twenty times that they should repent what they had done, and that she had told him so. He threatened to beat her if she was not silent. The woodcutter did not do this because he was less sorry than his wife, but because she because her reproaches angered him. His wife now shed tears and cried out, Alas, where are my children, my poor children? She said this so loud that the children who were at the door heard her and cried out together, We are here, we are here. She ran quickly to open the door and said as she embraced them, How overjoyed I am to see you again, my darling children. You must be very tired and very hungry. And you, Peter, how mighty you are, come let me brush you. Peter was her eldest son, whom she loved more than all the others. The children sat down at the table and ate with an appetite, which delighted their father and mother, to whom they described, all speaking at once, how frightened they had been in the forest. These good people were filled with joy to have their children with them again, and this joy lasted a long time as the ten crowns held out. But when the money was spent, they fell back into their former misery and resolved to lose them once more. And in order not to fail again, they determined to take, with, to take them much further into the forest than the first time. They could not, however, speak of this so secretly, but that they were overheard by Hop on my thumb, who laid his plan to escape as before. Although he had gotten up early in order to go out and pick some little stones, he could not succeed in his purpose, for he found the door was shut and double bolted. He was wondering what he should do, when his mother, having given them a bit of bread for breakfast, he thought that he might use his bread instead of pebbles by dropping crumbs along the path as they walked. He therefore slipped the bread into his pocket. Their father and mother led them this time into the thickest and darkest part of the forest, and as soon as they were there, ran and left them. Ohop my thumb was not much troubled, because he believed he could easily find his way by means of bread which he had scattered as he passed along, 
What was his surprise when he could not find a single crumb? The birds had come and eaten them all. Now was their lot indeed wretched. The more they wandered about, the deeper they buried themselves in the forest. Night came and the great wind arose, which frightened them terribly. They thought they heard all the sides of the howling hungry wolves coming to eat them up. They did not dare speak or even turn their heads. Rain began to fall, which wet them to the skin. They slipped at every step, and if they fell, got up so covered with mud that they could hardly move their hands. Finally, Ohapamitham climbed to the top of a tree to see if he could not discover something. Having looked on the sides, he at last saw a little gleam of light, like that from the candle, but it was very far off beyond the forest. He got down from the tree, but when he was on the ground, he had no longer saw anything, which troubled him greatly. However, having walked for some time with his brother in the direction where he had seen the light, he again saw as it came out of the woods. At last they reached the house where the candle was, though not without many alarms, for they lost sight of it whenever they descended into a hollow place. They knocked at the door, which was opened to them by a woman. She asked them what they wanted. Hapo Maitham replied that they were poor children who had lost themselves in the forest and who asked for charity's sake a place to sleep. The woman, seeing how bitter they were, began to weep and said to them, Alas, my poor children, whence do you come? Do you not know that this is the house of an orc who eats little children? Alas, madam, said Hapo Maitham, who, like his brothers, were shaking with fear, what shall we do? The wolves of the forest will certainly devour us tonight. If you will not give us shelter, this being of the case, we shall rather be eaten by an ogre, and he perhaps will take pity out of us if you will beg him to do so. The ogre's wife, who had thought she might be able to conceal them from her husband till the next morning, let them come in and place them near a good fire, where a whole sheep was roasting for the org's supper. When they had began to get warm, they heard three or four heavy knocks at the door. It was the ogre. His wife hastily hid, children, hid the children under the bed and then opened the door. The ogre asked first if supper was ready and the wine drawn and then sat down at the table. The mutton was nearly raw, but he liked it all the better on that account. He then began to sniff about, saying he smelled fresh meat. It must be the calf, which I have just been dressing that she smells, said the wife. I smell fresh meat, I tell you again, and said the ogre, looking fiercely at his wife, and there was something more which I do not know. Saying these words, he rose from the table and went straight to bed, where he found the poor children. Ah, said he, this, then, is the way you wish to deceive me, wicked woman. I know not what prevents me from eating you, too. Here is game, which comes to me very conveniently, to treat three ogres of my acquaintance. You are coming to visit me about this time. He then drew the little boys from under the bed, and one after another, the poor children threw themselves on their knees, begging for pardon. But they did, but they had to do with the most cruel of all ogres, 
who, far from having pity, devoured them already with his eyes, and said to his wife that they would be more delicious morsels fried when she made a good sauce for them. He took out a great knife, and approaching the poor children, began to sharpen it on a long stone, which he held in his left hand. He then seized one of them, when his wife said to him, Why do you begin at this time of night? Shall you not be have more tomorrow? Be silent, replied the ogre. They will be more tender if I kill them now. But you have already you have already so much meat on hand, replied his wife. Here, here are a calf, two sheep, and half a pig. You are right, said the ogre. Give them a good supper, that they may grow, may not grow thin, and put them to bed. The good woman was overcome with joy, and brought them supper at once, but they were so frightened to eat. As the ogre he set himself to drinking, delighted to have something with which to regale his friends. He drank a dozen cups more than usual, which went to his head, and obliged him to go early to bed. Now the ogre had seven daughters, who were still only children. These little ogresses all had beautiful complexions, for they ate fresh meat like their father. They had little round gray eyes, crooked noses, and great mouths filled with long teeth very sharp and far apart. They were not yet very wicked, but they promised well, for they already bit already bit little children once they got the chance. They had been put to bed early, and when all seven in one bed, each having a golden crown on her head, there was in the same room another bed of same size, here was the ogre's wife put seven little boys, after which she went to bed in her own chamber. Hapo Maitham, who had remarked that the ogre's daughters had golden crowns on their head, was afraid that the ogre might regret not having killed him and his brothers that evening. So he arose about the middle of the night, and taking his nightcap and those of, those of his brothers, he went very softly and placed them on the heads of the ogre's seven daughters. Having removed their golden crowns, he put the crowns of his on his brother's head and on his own, so that the ogres might mistake them for his daughters, and his daughters for the boys whom he wished to kill. The plan succeeded as he expected. The ogre, having awakened about midnight, was so sorry that he put off till the next day what he might have done that evening. He jumped quickly out of bed, and taking his great knife, Let us see, said he, how our little friends are getting on. He went tiptoe to the room of his daughters, and approached the bed where his, the little boys were all asleep, except Hop o' My Thumb, who was terribly frightened when he felt the ogre's hand touching his head, as he had already touched his brothers. But when the ogre felt the golden crown, he said, Indeed, I was near making a nice piece of work out of it. I see that I drank too much this evening. He then went to bed, went to the bed of his daughters, where he felt the little boy's little nightcaps. Ah, here they are, said he, the fine fellows. I must go boldly to work. Saying these words without hesitating, he cut the throats of his seven daughters. Very well pleased with his expedition, he went back to bed 
as soon as Ohatmaitam heard the ogre snoring, he awakened his brothers and told them to dress themselves quickly and follow him. They went softly down into the garden and leaped over the walls. They hurried away and ran almost all night without knowing whither they went. The ogre, when he woke up, said to his wife, Go upstairs and dress those little fellows who were here last night. The ogre, ogress was very much astonished at the kindness of her husband, not suspecting for a moment the way in which he meant that they should dress them, believing that he simply wished her to put clothes on their put on their clothes. She went upstairs where she was amazed to see her seven daughters with their throats cut. She was so overcome that she immediately fainted. The ogre, thinking his wife was slow, went upstairs to assist her. He was no less astonished than his wife when the frightful sight met his eyes. Ah, what ah, what have I done here? he cried, but those little wretches shall pay for this at once. He then threw a bucket of water into his wife's face, and having revived her, said, Give me quickly my seven league boots, that I have that I may go after those boys and catch them. He then started out in the country at once, and having rushed about in all directions, came at last to the road where the poor children were walking, and then not more than a hundred steps from their father's house, they saw the org striding from the mountain to mountain and crossing rivers as they were as if they were little brooks. Oh hop my thumb who saw a hollow rock near the place where they were near the, where they were, hid himself and his six brothers there, and watched carefully that made watch carefully what became of their enemy. The org who was very tired with all his long fruitless journey wished to rest himself, and sat down by chance on the very rock where the little boys were hidden. As he was overcome by fatigue, he soon fell asleep and began to snore so frightfully that the poor children were as much frightened as when he held his knife ready to cut their throats. Oh, Hop My Thumb was less afraid and told his brothers to run into the house while the ogre slept and not to worry about him. They followed his counsel and quickly reached the house. Oh, Hop My Thumb, Hop My Thumb then approached the ogre and softly drew off his boots and then put them on himself. The boots were very long and very large, but as they were fairy boots, they had a gift of becoming larger or smaller, according to their size of the wearer's legs. In fact, they fitted up with them as if they had been made for him. He then went straight to the ogre's house, where he found his wife weeping over her daughters. Your husband, said Hop My Thumb, is in great danger, for he has been taken by a band of robbers who will kill him if he does not give them all the gold and silver, just when they held their knives to his throat and perceived me. He besought me to come and tell you of the state in which he was, and to direct you to give me all that he has without retaining anything, since otherwise they should slay him without mercy. As time passed, he wished that I should take his seven-league boots, as you see, in order to make the haste, and also that you may, might not think me an impostor. The good woman, very much frightened, gave him all she had. For this the ogre was a good husband, although he did eat little children. Ohatmaitham began 
Ahavatham, being then loaded with all the ogre's treasures, returned to his father's house, where he was welcomed with great joy, and where they all lived happily ever after. The Goose Girl by Anonymous <coughs> There was once upon a time an old queen whose husband had been dead for many years, and she was beautiful and she had a beautiful daughter. When the princess grew up, she was betrothed to a prince who lived at a great distance. When the time came for her husband to be married, and she had to, and she had to journey forth into the distant kingdom, the aged queen packed up for ma- for her many costly vessels of silver and gold, and trinkets also of gold and silver, and cups and jewels, and short everything which appeared to be a royal drowy dowry, for she loved her child with all her heart. She likewise sent her maid in waiting, who was to ride with her and hand her over to the bridegroom, and each had a horse for the journey, but the horse of the king's daughter was called Falada, and could speak. So when the hour of parting had come, the aged mother went to her bedroom, took a small knife, and cut her finger until it was until it bled, and then she held a white handkerchief to it, with it, with which let three drops of blood fall, gave it to her daughter, and said to her child, Preserve this carefully, it will be of service to you on your way. So they took a sorrowful leave of each other. The princess put the piece of cloth in her bosom, mounted her horse, and went away to her bridegroom. After she had ridden a while, she felt a burning thirst, and said to her wanting maid, Dismount, and take my cup which thou hast brought with thee for me, and give me some water from the stream, for I would like to drink. If you are thirsty, said the waiting maid, get off your horse yourself, and lie down and drink of the water. I don't choose to be your servant. So in her great thirst, the princess aligned, and bent down over the water in the stream, and drank, and was not allowed to drink out of the golden cup. Then she said, Ah, heaven, and three drops of blood answered, If thy mother knew this, her heart would break. But the king's daughter was humble and said nothing, and mounted her horse again. She rode some miles further, but the day was warm, and the sun scorched her, and she was thirsty once more. And when they came to the stream of water, she again cried to her waiting maid, Dismount and give me of some water in my golden cup. For she had long ago forgotten the girl's ill words, but the waiting maid still more hauntly, if you wish to drink, drink as you can. I do not choose to be your maid. Then in her great thirst, the king's daughter aligned and bent over the flowering stream, wept and said, Ah, heaven, the drops of blood again replied. If thy mother knew this, her heart would break. And as she was thus drinking and leaning right over the stream, the handkerchief with three drops of blood fell out of her bosom and floated away with the water without her observing it. So great was her trouble. The waiting maid, however, had seen it, and her, and she rejoiced to think that she had now the power over the bride, for since the princess had lost the drops of blood, she had become weak and powerless. So now when she wanted to mount her horse again, the one 
that was called Falada. The waiting maid said, Falada is more suitable for me, and my neck will do for thee, and the princess had to be content with that. Then the waiting maid, with her many hard words, bade the princess exchange her royal apparel for her own shabby clothes, and at length she was compelled to swear by the sky above her that she would not say one word of this to any one at the court, and if she had not taken this oath, she would have been killed on the spot. But Falada saw all this and observed it well. The waiting maid now mounted Falada, and the true bride the bad horse, and thus they traveled onward, until at length they entered the royal palace. There was a great rejoicing over her arrival, and the prince sprang forward to meet her, lifted with the wanting maid from her horse, and though she was his consort, she was conducted upstairs, but the real princess was left standing below. Then the old king looked out of the window and saw her standing in the courtyard, and how dainty and delicate and beautiful she was, and instantly went to the royal apartment and asked the bride about the girl she had with her who was standing down below in the courtyard, and who she was. I picked her up on my way for a companion, give the girl something to work at, that she might not stand idle. But the old king, who had no work for her, and knew of none, said, so said he, so he said, I have a little boy who tends to the geese. She may help him. And the boy called Conrad, and the true bride had to had to help him tend to the geese. Soon afterward, the false bride said to the young king, Dearest husband, I beg you do me a favor. He answered, I will do so most willingly. Then send for the knacker, and have the head of the horse on which I rode here cut off, for it vexed me on the way. In reality, she was afraid that the horse might tell how she had behaved to the king's daughter, that she succeeded in making the king's promise that it should be done, and the faithful Falada was to die. This came to the ears of the real princess, and she secretly promised to pay the knacker a piece of gold if he would perform a small service for her. There was a great, dark-looking gateway in the town through which the morning and evening she had to pass with the geese would be so good to you as nail up Fulata's head on it, so that she might see him again. More than once the knacker's man promised to do that and cut off the head and nailed it fast beneath the dark gateway. Early in the morning, when she, when she and Conrad drove out their flock beneath the gateway, she said in passing, Alas, Falada, hanging there. And then his head answered, Alas, young queen, how ill you fare. This is your tender, this your tender mother knew. Her heart would surely break in two. Then they went for, still further out of the town and drove their geese into the country. And when they had come to the meadow, she sat down and unbound her hair, which was like pure gold. And Conrad saw it and delighted in its brightness and waved to pluck a few hairs. Then she said, Blow, blow, like gentle wind, I say, blow Conrad's little hay hat away and make him chase it here and there until I have braided all my hair and bound it up again. And there came such a violent wind that it blew Conrad's hat far across the country, 
and he was forced to run after it. When he came back, she had finished combing her hair and put it up again, and he could not get any of it. Then Conrad was angry and would not speak to her, and thus he watered the geese until that evening, and then they went home. The next day, when they were driving the geese out through the dark gateway, the maiden said, Alas, Falanda's hanging there. Falada answered, Alas, young queen, how ill you fare. This is your ten this your tender mother knew her heart would surely break in two. And she sat down again in the field and began to comb out her hair. Conrad ran and tried to clutch it, so she said in haste, Blow, blow the gentle wind, I say, blow Conrad's little hat away, and make him chase it here and there till I have braided all my hair and bound it up again. Then the wind blew, and blew his little hat off his head, and far away, and Conrad was forced to run after it, and when he came back, her hair had been put up a long time, he could get none of it, and so they looked after their geese till evening came. But in the evening, after they had come home, Conrad went to the old king and said, I won't tend the geese with that girl any longer. Why not, inquired the aged king, Oh, because she vexed me the whole day long. Then she aged. Then the aged king commanded him to relate what it was that she did to him. And Conrad said, In the morning when we pass beneath the dark gateway with the flock, there is a sorry horse's head on the wall, and she says to it, Ah, Falada's hanging there. And that head replies, Alas, young queen, how ill you fare. This is your tender mother. This your tender mother knew, her heart would be would surely break in two. And Conrad went on to relate what happened at the goose pasture, and how when he had to chase his hat, and the king commanded him to drive his flock out again the next day. And as soon as morning came, he placed himself behind a dark behind the dark gateway, and heard how the maiden spoke to the head of Falada, and then he too went into the country and hid himself in the thicket on the meadow. There he soon saw with his own eyes the goose girl and the goose boy bringing their flock, and how after a while she sat down and unplaited her hair, which shone with radiance, and soon she said, Blow, blow thy gentle wind, I say, and blow Conrad's little hat away, and make him chase it here and there, till I have braided all my hair, and bound it up again. And then came a blast of wind and carried off Conrad's hat, so that he had to run far away. While the maiden quietly went on combing and plaiting her hair, all of which the king observed. And then, quite unseen, he went away. And with the and when the goose girl came home in the evening, he called her aside and asked why she did all these things. I may not tell you that, and I dare not lament my sorrow to any human being, for I have sworn not to do so by the heavens, which is above me. If I had not done that, I should have lost my life. And he urged her and left her no peace, but he could draw nothing from her. And then said he, If thou wilt not tell me anything, thy sorrow to the iron stove there. And he went away. And then she crept into the iron stove and began to weep and lament emptied her whole heart, and said, Here I am, deserted by the whole world, and yet I am a king's daughter, and a false waiting maid, 
has henceforth brought me to such a pass that I will have been compelled to put off my royal appear, apparel. And she had taken my place with the bridegroom, and I have to perform menial service as a goose girl. If my mother did not know that her heart, if my mother didn't know that her heart would break. The aged king, however, was standing outside by the pipe of the stove and was listening to what she said and heard it. Then he came back again and bade her come out of the stove, and royal garments were placed on her, and it was marvelous how beautiful she was. The aged king summoned his son and revealed to him he had got the false bride, who was only a waiting maid, but that the true one was standing there, and as sometime goose girl, the young king rejoiced with all his heart when he saw her beauty and youth, and the great feast was made ready to which all the people and all good friends were invited. At the head of the table sat the bridegroom, with the king's daughter at one side of him, and the waiting maid on the other, but the waiting maid was blinded, and did not recognize the princess in her dazzling array. When they had eaten and drunk, and were merry, the aged king asked the waiting maid, as of a riddle, what person deserves to behave in such a way to her master, and at the same time related the whole story, and asked what sentence should be, should such one merit. The false bride said she deserves no better fate than to be stripped entirely naked and put in a barrel which is studded inside with pointed nails, and the two white horses should be harnessed to it, which will drag her along through one street after another until she is dead. It is thou, said the aged king, and thou must pronounce thy own sentence, and thou it be done unto thee. And then the sentence had been carried out, and the young king married his true bride, and both of them reigned over their kingdom in peace and happiness. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Junior Classics Volume 1. Uh, these episodes come out on Friday. And uh, until next time, we will continue this uh, reading of the Junior Classics. There's uh, several more stories. Well, a few more stories to go, but we are getting closer to the end. I want to thank everyone for coming out. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.